Hey there, I'm Andrew Yeager, and welcome to WBHM Politics. The city of Birmingham is back. That's been the message these past few years from city leaders as new condos and amenities have gone up and downtown. Nearby neighborhoods such as Avondale have also seen new restaurants and entertainment spots open up. And while those sorts of things bring investment and attention, they also prompt an outcry from some of gentrification. The issue of gentrification has found its way into Birmingham's mayoral runoff between Mayor William Bell and challenger Randall Woodfin. And so we'll talk today about gentrification in Birmingham and how it fits into this political season. Joining me is WBHM's local government reporter, Cheryl Wheeler-Stewart. Cheryl, good to have you here. Great to be here again, Andrew. Also, uh, Anthony Hood. He's an associate professor of management at UAB's Collat School of Business. Uh, Dr. Hood, good to have you here. Uh, Thanks for having me back. And Elijah Davis. He's a MBA student at UAB and also with Urban Impact, an economic development group in Birmingham. And uh, Elijah, thanks for talking with us. Uh, Thanks for inviting me. Well, just to start things off, this word gentrification, it's a big word. A lot of people attach meanings to it, whether it's fair or not. But Dr. Hood, when you're looking at this, at least from an academic perspective, what's the definition of gentrification? You know, gentrification really is kind of a multi-stage process. You know, it's really encompasses investment in, you know, historically uh, disinvested and depressed uh, neighborhoods. Um, But the negative effects of that investment oftentimes is displacement of the residents that have been living in those areas. So the idea being that you have a depressed area and then new money comes in from somewhere Mm -hmm. and then uh, residents that had been there can't afford the new neighborhood. Correct. And, And Cheryl, as you've talked to voters about this issue when you say gentrification, what the kind of things that they say? I've heard a couple of different voices. There are people who I've spoken with in places like Smithfield and Fountain Heights who ask the question, what will happen to our neighborhoods? And most of them have hope. Most of them uh, that I've talked with say that as they see the development downtown, they look to find, they hope to see good things happening soon in their neighborhoods as well. The president of one of the neighborhoods was telling me, She wants to see a full grocery store and retail opportunities, but she also wants to be able to maintain her home there. That gets to the fear there, Mm -hmm. that maintaining your home, even if we have all these things that we want. Right. But to be clear, I mean, the issue of gentrification is is not all that simple. I mean, it's so nuanced, it's so complex, and I think we oftentimes simplify it, you know, at the risk of oversimplifying it. But, you know, Elijah and I have had a lot of conversations about this. It's it's really a lot more complex than that. Well, Elijah, what's some of that complexity? Because you're on the ground in, in a certain sense. Absolutely. Uh, some of that complexity deals with uh, you have usually um, a lower moderate income community who is occupying the space that a higher income community wants uh, for whatever reason, be it convenience, location, uh, things of that nature. And so the complexity comes in around uh, do the folks have the capital to uh, stay market rate or are they displaced? And so that and, and all the complexities lie with, uh, you know, who that demographic is and things of that nature. And then we oftentimes overlay race and class uh, in these conversations of gentrification, gentrification, which makes it very emotional. And that's what I was going to mention, because I think about a city of Birmingham, which is not unique among American cities, where you had uh, white flight in the second half of the 20th century. A lot of these folks coming back to the city, so to speak, and, and the money attached to it are from the white community going into a majority black city. How much is that sort of cultural tension playing here? I don't know, if Cheryl, have you heard about that? There are some underlying conversations. There are people who fear that, you know, if 
people who had moved to the suburbs come back and just really fully occupy downtown, then the strength of the African-American community will be diluted by that. Uh, Some people do not see the potential or, or, or the benefit at this time of what this might bring. Do you see this reflected, uh, Dr. Hood, in, in the conversations you've had? Oh, absolutely. And in what way? The fear is, you know, neighborhoods in, in Birmingham, um, people have already been displaced. You know, sometimes, you know, as, as a researcher, I want to see the, the data. You know, how many people have actually been displaced? You know, at, at one point it was reported that Birmingham has 16,000, you know, tax delinquent properties. Not all of those properties were vacant or abandoned, but, you know, a lot of them were. So if people are moving into neighborhoods and occupying the, you know, vacant properties, is that really displacement? And then, you know, we simplify it saying that you have a majority black neighborhood and rich white people are moving in, you know, but what about the middle class African-Americans that also fled a lot of these neighborhoods, you know, in the 70s and 80s? At what point do the, do the black middle class begin to come back into these neighborhoods? And so if you have black and white middle class people coming back into the neighborhoods, does that lessen some of the negative impacts that are typically associated with gentrification? Typically, look at a community like Norwood, just uh, north of downtown. Norwood back in the 70s when I was a kid was a place where a lot of the people who owned businesses downtown lived and they were close to downtown. Well, with white flight, those properties, many of them became vacant and they fell into extreme disrepair. Now you have a situation where people have come into Norwood, purchased those properties. Some lots have been cleared, yes, but some very nice homes have, you know, receive new new birth, I guess, from, from this effort. <laughs> Anthony Hood, you, you mentioned this idea of I want to see the data. From looking at the data, and, and, and Elijah, perhaps you have some perspective on this as well, are people actually being displaced? I think when you look at of a lot of our neighborhoods in Birmingham, you already have a transient population. You know, there are people that are on six, 12-month leases, and they'll be in Inslee for, you know, a couple years. And then for whatever reason, their job may change, they fa- their family status may change, they may have to take care of a uh, elderly parent, and they move to a- another neighborhood. So I would like to see how much, uh, you know, just movement do we already have, and is that being, you know, tangled up with displacement? To add to that, if you look at some of the populations uh, of neighborhoods, um, sometimes it's over half of the folks who are renters, even in traditional single-family units. So I think that adds to Dr. Hood's point about uh, what what are the natural movement patterns already. When we think about displacement, what does that really mean? So I'm a property owner. And there are vacant properties in my neighborhood. You know, my wife and I canvassed our neighborhood a couple summers ago, the 1,300 properties in Bush Hills. We found that there were about 250 of those properties were actually vacant. I really want somebody to come in and occupy those properties. And I think if people come in and occupy those properties, my property value is going to go up. Is that necessarily a bad thing for me as a property owner? And so I think that's the other nuance is that the people who own property, whether it's residential or commercial, they want their property values to go up. And I'm willing to pay higher property taxes for a higher quality life in my neighborhood. Now, I also need to be sensitive to, you know, my neighbors that are on fixed income. But then also, if you look at it, if you're 65 or older, you know, your property taxes, you're exempt from that. How really are those people being displaced? Now, a lot of our elderly people don't even know that they're eligible for that exemption. So I think that's another thing that we have to do is make sure that people understand you know, what mechanisms are in place to kind of prevent or lessen the negative impacts of displacement. 
But as we see the redevelopment in these neighborhoods, the other question becomes, you know, will people be able to afford to live there? That's at the end of the day, that's what most people care about. If I'm on a six to 12 month lease and I want to live there for an additional six or 12 months, how long will it be before I'm paying, you know, 25 percent, 50 percent, 100 percent more than I did five years ago? And is that a good or bad thing? And that's the challenge, you know, Elijah and I are business students, you know, so in order to incentivize somebody to come in and make an investment into the neighborhood, they want a positive return on their investment. And so for me, if I'm going to invest, if you tell me that I'm not going to be able to raise, you know, the rents with which I'm asking, then, you know, that's going to discourage me from making that investment. So that's the challenge. Absolutely. Uh, To add to that, uh, the current literature and research around gentrification pegs uh, one of the sort of harbingers as being the rent gap. That is to say, um, the highest use of this property or land could be here, but it is way under market value. Um, and so in in terms of what Dr. Hood just mentioned and in incentivizing uh, business folks to come in and invest, uh, sometimes that is really attractive only if they can raise the rent. Now I want to transition here a little bit because all this conversation is taking place within the context of city elections. And I want to play a few clips here. This is from a debate between Mayor William Bell and challenger Randall Woodfin. Um, This was a debate that aired on September 21st on WVTM-TV. The audio is courtesy of uh, WVTM. Uh, The two were asked about fears around gentrification, and here is what Mayor Bell had to say. Well, first of all, the growth that we are seeing right now in Birmingham, we're not displacing people. Um, People are moving back into areas where people did not live before. Uh, Secondly, we've set up a gentrification task force to look at those elements that we can eliminate out of our uh, community development programs that will make sure we can support residents who live in those communities and who have lived in those communities long term, get the benefit of remaining there in the community. Randall Woodfin, meanwhile, responded by mentioning the Southtown Public Housing Community. There are plans to turn that property into a mixed-use development. And when you talk to the residents of Southtown, there's a lot of conversation at the table where the residents are not included as it relates to possibly replacing Southtown Public Housing. That's a concern for gentrification because if it's not one for one and the mayor or anybody at the housing authority is not talking to those residents, they have real concerns and they have the right to be concerned about what's gonna happen to them next. And here's a little bit more of the back and forth on the issue. My opponent has gone there to fan the flames. Uh, No one has been removed from that area, but he's raising that red flag and and scaring people, when in fact we will do what's right by the people of of that community. Thank you. Mr. Woodfin, your rebuttal, 30 seconds. It isn't possible to scare people if they're already afraid. It's impossible to scare people who have legitimate fears of what's going to happen to them next. All of the political attacks aside, the thing that jumps out to me about those clips is that it goes to the Southtown Housing Community, a public housing project. And I wonder, um, Anthony Hood, does that fit into gentrification in your mind? Because there are all sorts of things involved with federal housing policy that's just separate from the normal you know, business development cycle. Absolutely. I mean, we're talking about investing in communities that have lacked investment uh, for a lot of years. So now you have people who are looking, you know, that property is, this is valuable property. It's worth investing in. You know, but I think oftentimes, you know, when we're looking at development, we're looking at investing in things and not people. You know, so how do we invest in the people as well as the built environment and do that in a very sensitive manner? 
the other thing you have to think about, you know, if Southtown is redeveloped as planned, then there will be more businesses there. So will there be more opportunities for people who live there or grow up in Southtown to have employment close by? You know, so there are different sides to this, you know, to, to this argument that's being presented. I think It's not a zero sum. No. Well, I mean, and again, we're scientists. So show me the data, you know, show me the other previous projects that we've had, Hope Six projects or what have you, where, we took out a uh, a government property, redeveloped it. How many of those people were actually, you know, allowed to come back in, you know, and those who weren't, you know, was that voluntary, involuntary, and what happened to those people? I think that is something that can be known, and we can develop lessons learned from that. I think the uh, uh, the Southtown uh, project opens up a, a, a larger discussion around uh, city planning uh, and residential. Uh, areas in city centers, right? So, you know, other cities talk about rent caps, mixed income developments um, around income-based. And so I think uh, this should push us to a a conversation in Birmingham about how do we develop some of those policies. Um, One of the things uh, that in terms of uh, sort of the racial overlay uh, in Avondale, you see the, the, the commercial uh, district that happened there, but it occupied a vacant pretty much warehouse space and then the residential, uh, you know, landscape change. And so I think that we should really uh, have conversations around uh, housing policy, especially in city centers and commercial districts. Are there natural public policy solutions that address that issue, that address that tension of we want developing these neighborhoods, we don't want dilapidated homes, but we realize that with that influx of money, property values are going to go up. It's going to put pressure on lower-income individuals, um, and we still want a certain level of equal access. I mean, is there a natural place to go to if you're a, a policy thinker as far as addressing that issue? Well, I think uh, the best uh, sort of mechanism to allay sort of the displacement concerns of gentrification is uh, ownership ownership of property. So we have some mechanisms that could uh, potentially be enhanced, you know, with the land bank authority, right, and making that ease of access uh, easier for residents who have been occupying a single family unit to, you know, ensure and empower them to be able to own the property, as well as the pro- commercial properties in their neighborhood, you know, Main Street, so to say. Uh, they also Um, in terms of uh, what we just mentioned in terms of rent caps, as well as uh, sort of income-based mixed uh, use and mixed income development. So some of the sort of leading thoughts. Now, you mentioned the land bank authority, and we haven't brought that up in full detail here in this discussion, but I think that's key to any uh, revitalization efforts in our city right now because Dr. Hood mentioned earlier the number of vacant properties in the city. So the city has set forth with uh, the help of the legislature some guidelines for acquiring properties. Um, Basically, is it tax-free in in some instances? Uh, If there's a property that's next to your home that's vacant, then you can apply to make that become a side lot and there are minimal costs I believe involved in doing that. I think it's roughly about $3,500 and I think for the most part that covers the cost of taking it through the court system to get clear title for the property. Okay so you know we start thinking about all these vacant properties that's a that's a way because of of handling it because at least in in part because there are so many houses that are vacant that are you know two or three lots away from another very nice home. You know, the other thing that we have to talk about when we talk about policy, we got to think about business policy. 
I mean, think about things like redlining. How, how did our neighborhoods get to the way they are now? This is not the natural state of a lot of our neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. These neighborhoods were intentionally developed like that because of transportation policies, the way that we ran interstates through historically uh, African-American neighborhoods. What about financial literacy? You know, are we really educating people on, you know, how do you become a first-time homeowner and things like that? What about estate planning? You know, there are a lot of people who pass away, and then that property ends up getting caught up in the court system. So, you know, I know the city at one time had a RISE program where they were addressing estate planning and financial education and things like that. All those different policies need to be put in place from a government standpoint, but as well as a business standpoint in order to lessen the negative impacts of investment. I think one of the uh, one of the requirements for the land bank participation is that in acquiring land you must have a will so that if something else happens uh, to the person who acquires the land then there's a path for someone else to own it mm-hmm. because part of the problem I think we have is that a lot of the pro- a lot of the land is vacant because it's air property and no one knows who owns it. As I try to bring this conversation in for a landing I'm and getting back to the politics a little bit, I wonder, we think about an election. We hear about crime. We hear about education. But do you see gentrification as an issue that actually motivates people, to motivate for someone or against someone or, or, or get them to the polls? Uh, how do you see that? I think it's important for those who are directly impacted, but for the broader community. You know, if, if I don't live in Southtown, if I don't live in Fountain Heights, if I live in Oxmoor Valley, am I concerned about gentrification? Is that an issue that will motivate me? I'm not sure that it will. A lot of my friends, uh, they may live on the outskirts, but their mama, their grandmama still lives, you know, in some of these neighborhoods. They still go to church in some of these neighborhoods. So it still is top of mind to them. And so when they're going to these neighborhoods, they're passing by these these properties. And it is top of mind. So I think anything that you see, you can touch, you can feel, uh, is a motivator to get you to the polls. And I think that uh, the elections really give platform uh, to specific policy wants from the community. I think that's the greatest public service that an election provides, that you get to voice a lot of the platforms. So going forward, you can begin to say, well, what should we do? What type of intentional thinking should we have around our communities and planning? So I think it's a big issue for voters. That's Elijah Davis. He's an MBA student at UAB, also with the economic development group Urban Impact in Birmingham. You also heard from Anthony Hood, an associate professor of management at UAB's Collat School of Business, and of course, WBHM's local government reporter, Cheryl Wheeler-Stewart. Thanks so much to all of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this week's edition of WBHM Politics. The show was produced by Gigi Duban, Cheryl Wheeler-Stewart, and myself. Our theme song is by local Birmingham guitarist Eric Essex and is called Find Your Way. We want to know what you think. Send us your thoughts through the WBHM Facebook page or tweet at us. We're at WBHM, or you can use the hashtag WBHM Politics. Don't forget, Tuesday, October 3rd is the runoff election in Birmingham, so get out and vote, and we'll have our own wrap-up of the election results next week. I'm Andrew Yeager. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.